0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, found on page 975, 975 of the Black Pew Bible there in front of you. Remember that as we turn to the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of churches in south-central Asia Minor, the region of Galatia, churches that he founded, he planted, he evangelized, but churches that had come under false teaching, under the teaching of Judaizers who who taught a, a different gospel, a corrupted gospel. They said that it wasn't just faith alone that made you right or justified before God, but you really needed faith plus works. To be justified before God. Now, perhaps that doesn't seem so significant, but from the whole of the letter Paul's been writing, he has been arguing that to to do this, to add our our works, our righteousness, uh, our resume as that which commends us unto God, makes us right with Him, is to corrupt the gospel entirely. Rather, Paul's making clear, paragraph after paragraph, that the true gospel is by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. So perhaps you can imagine Paul's opponents and their question: Well, if it's all by grace, no works lest any man should boast, why work? Uh, What is the incentive anymore? Why would I be motivated to sacrifice for the Lord, to, uh, you know, uh, not give in to my flesh, to, to live a righteous and holy life? We mentioned last time Dr. Keller's illustration of his sons not getting as good of grades or working quite as hard the second semester of their senior year. Why? Because they'd already gotten into the colleges of their choice. What's the point of working hard? The the colleges don't see those grades. And for the Christian, indeed, uh, the grade is in. Our future is secured. We've gotten into the college of choice. Heaven is our home. Jesus Christ's grades have been substituted for ours. So why study anymore? That's what Paul's opponents certainly have been saying. What keeps Christians from falling into license, lawlessness, antinomianism, cheap grace, Why would they mortify the flesh, sacrifice for the church, keep working? Let's begin reading at chapter 5 and verse 13, as we'll read through verse 15. Paul is saying, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So why work if it's all been given? Why not give over to to freedom of every kind, to do what I want, to to live in Mexico on the beach with the umbrella drinks the rest of my life? Why continue to, to press on towards the goal? Well, as we said last time, Paul points to love in verse 13c and 14. The whole law, one word, love. The answer to license, a life of lawlessness, is love. Now, uh, perhaps that's uh, uh, immediately apparent to you why Paul says that, what what he means when he says that. But for those of us who, who perhaps don't see it, we've been trying to answer the question, how is love the answer to license? How is love the answer to lawlessness? How is it love that ought to motivate me to live for God and His glory, to grow in my holiness? Last time, we said that verse 12b, or 13b, warns us of of a false freedom. That is, indulgence of the flesh or independence completely from responsibility. A a false freedom, of course, that our, our world buys hook, line, and sinker. Moreover, we know that love is uh, the, the right constraints, the ones that we're meant for, that is meant to set us free, that really love represents true freedom. We said that love is who you were made by. God is love. It's what you were made for. You're made in, him, in His image to represent Him to all the earth as those who love one another. He said it's what you've been saved unto. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, if you would be my disciples, the world would know you if you love one another. So that we have said so far that love is who you were made by, what you were made for, what you were saved unto. But there, there's still more here. We might summarize that first point. of The last sermon is saying, that how is love the answer to license? Well, love is your design. It's what you were made for, made by, made unto. But our our two points this morning will be further answers. Why, how does love answer license? Well, because of the change that makes love possible. That'll be our first point. Because of the change that makes love possible and because of the opposite of love, which Paul discusses in verse 15. Those are our two points this morning, two answers to the question, why keep working? What motivates us to follow God tirelessly and to sacrifice for His glory? Because of the change and because of the opposite of love. First of all, because of the change. Paul, you see, understands the, the fallen human condition. Back in chapter 4 and verse 8, he was recalling, he said, quote, Formerly, when you did not know God, he's, he's speaking to the Galatians, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. That is, you were part and parcel of paganism and part of the idolatry of the pagan world. But now that you've come to know God, how can you go back again? Which is interesting because people Paul is writing to aren't going back to paganism. They're going back to the principles of paganism that are, he would say, are found in unbiblical Judaism. And so what are those principles Paul is speaking of? What principle is it that paganism and unbiblical Judaism has in common? They might say it's the most natural principle in the world. Ordinarily, it's presumed in every, in every relationship. You might call it the, the principle of works or the principle of transaction. We are transactional beings. I do something for you, you do something for me. You do me a favor, I owe you a favor. As everyone's grandfather says, there is no such thing as a free lunch. We might say that, of course, it's an economic principle of the world. Things uh, must be bought and sold. Nothing comes for free, but it's also, we might say, an emotional principle or or an interpersonal principle for all peoples. If you want people to like you, you need to be likable. If you want friends, you need to be friendly. Uh, You get out of the relationships, what you put into it. It shows up in the way we talk about uh, having children course, this is the drag about having kids. People are thinking, well, I put more into this than they're worth. You know, they're expensive. And of course, this is not only true economically or emotionally. You know, this is the way politics works. You pay for play. There's a quid pro quo. You, you give something to receive something in return. But this is also the way that, of course, the religious world works as well. All the religions of the world work on this works principle or this transactional principle of the world. The former ways Paul is talking about that they're going back to is treating God transactionally. You keep the Torah, you get the blessing. Or you keep the Sharia law, you get the blessing. You make sacrifices to the corn God, you have a great corn harvest. You do the rain dance and you get rain. You do something and God responds in kind. Christopher Watkin, in his helpful book, Biblical Critical Theories, calls this an N-shaped universe, an N-shaped universe. The the sacrifice, the commitment, the work, the offering starts with you. It goes up to God. He accepts it and sends down blessing. It's in the shape of one big letter N. And even, of course, Bible-believing evangelicals can so easily fall into the trap of, a, of an end shaped universe where if we go to church and read our Bibles and do things right and tithe, God will receive that and send down blessing. Oh, life will go well for us. It's the most natural way in the world to think. But what Paul has been arguing from the very first verses of the book of Galatians and the gospel of justification by faith alone is that it ought to shift us from an N-shaped universe to a U-shaped universe, the letter U-shaped universe. See, in the Christian gospel, the world is turned upside down by a principle not of transaction but of grace, not of giving to get but rather receiving to give because the action, you see, doesn't start with us. The good news of the Christian gospel is that Uh, The gospel doesn't begin with us at all. He doesn't come to save us because we've done our part. He doesn't justify us based upon our religious resume, our our balance in the scales. His favor is not conditional on our works. It starts with Him. He is the initiator, as Paul says in Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, in a a U-shaped universe... Christ comes to us not because we've done the dance or done the pilgrimage or lived a good life. No, Paul says, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not as if you were on the ocean on a dark night and flailing around and you worked up God's compassion because you were so earnest or sincere in your calling out. No, the truth of the gospel is, that you're dead on the bottom of the ocean, but a corpse, and he brings new life to you. He breathes the breath of life into you, and you are born again. That is, it starts with God. Now, him having come down to justify, save, adopt you, now your good works, you see, are, are a response to his grace. It begins with him, it comes down to us, and we live lives responsively to him. Our works are not meritorious, bringing him down, they do not earn his favor. They are responsive, subsequent, and even only made possible because of his grace. See, in a U shaped universe, the burden of law as ladder is taken away. No longer worrying about whether we've done enough to, to tip the scales in our favor. We're not worrying if we have given enough or been good enough before God. No, we know it's by faith alone, lest any man should boast. And the difference between this transactional, N-shaped universe and this grace-driven, U-shaped universe is that it actually makes love possible. This change of universe makes love possible. If we're living in an N-shaped universe, you serve God to get what you want. You do not serve him simply because you love him or for his own sake or for his own glory. No, if we're honest, the the motivating factor of our love of God, is it gifts or giver? Do you love God because he is lovely or do you love God so that you can have a nice life and have security in eternity? See, one is actually love and the other is actually selfishness. One is actually worship. Worship and the other is actually idolatry. One is out for the gifts, and the other gifts, and other is out for the giver. And, and we all know the difference. Um, you know, a- ABC, however many years ago, came up with the show The Bachelor. Perhaps you've heard of it. You know, there's 26 women, and they're all on this uh, reality TV show in which there's a man, and he's handsome and wealthy, and and each week, he eliminates some of the girls, and, you know, they're all competing for his hand to be married to The Bachelor. Well, it's been a popular show ever since, but early on in the early 2000s, uh, the Fox Broadcasting Network um, came up with a different show. It's called Joe Millionaire. And Joe Millionaire was set up very similarly, where there's 20 or so women, and they're competing for this you know, man's hand in marriage, and he's handsome, and he's nice, and he, they all think he's wealthy, but the truth is, is, is that he's not Joe Millionaire, he's actually the average Joe. And he actually has no money, and he's a construction worker, and lives in a trailer, and in his fridge he's got beer and hot dogs and nothing else. And the show was a, a record-setting success. Why? Because we all want to know whether you're in it. For love or to get rich? Are you in it for the right reasons? Are you in it for the gifts or for the giver? As Paul says, First Corinthians 13, love is not self-seeking. See, Paul points to love here as the antidote to a life of license and loafing because of our design to love, we've said, but also because of the change that makes love possible if you are justified by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, you have a, a changed universe. It's no longer an N-shaped universe where you're trying to get God to work for you. No, God has come down and He saved you. He's made you His own. Our response must be one of gratitude and love. For the first time, you can love God for God, not just for His gifts. I can actually become an, a worshiper and not an idolater. So the reason number one for, for why work, we said, is because of your design, made for love. Secondly, because of the change that happens to you. Love is made possible. It's the right response to God's grace. But thirdly, we ought to see from our text, because of the opposite. This is what Paul shows us in verse 15. Look there. It says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Without love, this is where the church is headed, no doubt, to consumption, to extinction. Uh, no doubt the, there had been much conflict in the Galatian churches, that the Judaizers had their people, and there were people in the church who were, you know, uh, loyal to Paul and his teaching, and there would be infighting and nipping and fighting, and Paul is warning them against church conflict, no doubt. But, but the way he does so is fascinating to me, in his language of bite, devour consume. Because of course there's no cannibalism actually going on. He's speaking metaphorically. But, but why, why speak of it in this way? And I think there's much uh, insight into the way people work. This is how people work, aren't, isn't it? People can seem nice, kind, even loving until it becomes clear that you can't or, or won't give them what they want. People tend to use people rather than love them. And often used people think that they are being loved until they have been bitten, chewed up, and spit out. We might say. Indeed, this is the way Paul uses the same language in 2 Corinthians 11:20. One commentator mentions that it is the language of what a wolf pack would do to its prey. And why does a wolf pack bite, devour, consume? Well, because there's a hunger. And there's a need that they have from that prey. It's the same reason the uh, the black widow spider famously consumes her mate after they've mated. Uh, The the, the mother spider needs the nutrients. It needs something to be extracted from its prey. Indeed, Paul knows this is how people work. So often our interactions are not guided by self-giving love, but rather its opposite, self-gratifying consumption. Paul knows human hunger is is not only for physical food, but emotional, psychological, spiritual. And satisfaction for those appetites can often be turned on one another. It's all too easy to live a life, your whole life, doing nice stuff for people, only so that they give you what you want from them. Their respect, admiration, love, approval, perhaps their business. We tend to live in an N-shaped universe, not only with God, but with one another. You are nice to your neighbor, not because perhaps they're, they're made in the image of God or because Christ commands you, but because when you run out of sugar, it's nice to have a neighbor to, to ask for sugar. Or in times of a hurricane and the power goes out, it's nice to have a friendly face around it's all too easy to parent, or to think about parenting in such a way. You have children because they will take care of you in your old age. You have children so that they, uh, you fit in with your friends. Or as Michael Scott in the Office famously says, he wants to have children so that they will be his friends. Perhaps the Samaritan woman at the well is a good way example of the way in which our, our love can knowingly or unknowingly become human conception. Jesus says to her, "You've had five husbands." And the man you're now with is not your husband. The woman at the well is there for a reason in the heat of the day by herself. She has been ostracized and blacklisted because she has become apparently something of a black widow, extracting, looking for things from men. She wants love, and she's looking for it in all the wrong places. Indeed, Paul's instructions to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Why are husbands told to love their wives and wives told to see to it you respect your husbands? Well, it's because women like chick flicks and men like war movies. That is that women ordinarily, generally crave love, affection, to be cherished, protected. Men desire honor, respect. They want to know where they fit in the team and how they uh, contribute to the cause, A dishonored husband or an unloved wife are often hungry people who can be seen looking all over for that which will fill their souls, often towards one another. When they don't get it, they can bite, devour, and consume one another, and even their whole marriage and their family. Indeed, Dr. Johnson, in his commentary on this passage, points to the way this often can play out even in the church. People come to the church for all kinds of reasons, with all kinds of hungers, some for community or significance or respect or friendship. And whatever the case so often, when they don't get what they want, they too begin biting, consuming, devouring one another. The conflict, the anger, the rage comes out quick, even when subtle changes happen. Dr. Johnson says there's a will to power that often motivates people, even in the church. I have friends in the ministry who have had it explained to them by members of their church that this is my blankety-blank church. Indeed, all their service, giving, apparent love for the church was really just for them, for their own sense of belonging, respect, community, fill in the blank. Indeed, uh, many come to the church as consumers seeking what the church has to offer them instead of, say, lovers of God and of His people seeking how to serve it. See, a church can't survive many consumers. The church needs, it must be filled with those who are ready to self-give rather than self-satisfy. So that as we come to, to answer this larger question of, of why, why love? Why work? Well, love, how does love answer license? We might explain it, it is our design. It's who we made by, for, saved unto. After all, it is the change that makes love possible from an N-shaped universe to a U-shaped universe, and because the opposite of love ought to warn us. Human consumption ought to make us quick to love and to work towards loving one another. As Paul has pointed out, it is our nature to indeed bite, devour, consume one another to seek to get from one another what we feel we need. Instead of being a a life-giving, self-giving, a lover, we easily become the desperate sucker of life. Indeed, the the Samaritan woman at the well was thirsty. Perhaps she didn't know what for. She knew she had had man after man and was still thirsty. Jesus says to her, The man whom you are looking for, I am. Jesus says to her, If you had asked me for water, I would have given you living water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus says there's no need to try and extract from one another those things you need to fill your souls. Because often, even when you get it, even when you get the respect you desire or the love and the admiration you you so longed for, does it satisfy no, indeed, it often makes you only hungrier for it. All power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, because we are hungry for the things of this world. But there's but one thing that satisfies. Jesus says, Don't feed on one another. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The obsession you might have, and finding that one person who will fulfill you. They won't. They can't. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Feed on me. Find satisfaction. The one thing meant to fulfill your souls. And when you're full of Christ and you have the living water welling up to eternal life, you have a fullness with which you are able to give other people. You have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, so that we might give the love of God to one another. Why, how are Christians motivated to works of righteousness? Because they can't help it. A true Christian who has the Holy Spirit in them has the love of God flowing from them. It's a shallow question for the Judaizers to challenge Paul with. How does does love answer license? It's what we're designed for, changed unto, the opposite of which will destroy the church, but the love which builds up the church is our only hope as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the bread of life, and I pray that we would feed upon Him day in and day out, that we would find satisfaction for our souls, that those who hunger and thirst here, who are tempted to try to extract it from one another, from our children, from our spouses, from our friends at work, the things we long for. Oh, Lord, may we find them in You, our Father in heaven who gives His approval, the lover of our souls who cherishes and loves us. Give us satisfaction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.